Allie's going to read our psalm for us today, or at least a part of our psalm. It's kind of a long psalm. And so do me a favor. As you grab a seat, kind of pay attention, because the way we've kind of abridged this psalmist is kind of help us see the kind of the juxtaposition that the psalmist is kind of trying to get, get for us. So, so I'll let Allie take it away. This is from Psalm 102. Listen to me, answer me, for my days pass away like smoke. My bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down. My enemies taunt me. Use my name as a curse. I lie awake. I eat ashes like bread. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You arise and have pity on Zion. Build up Zion. You laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hand, your servants old, so that a people yet to be created may praise you. Your servants dwell secure. Their offspring, offspring shall be established before you. Thank you. So disappointed people, people who find themselves with their world kind of unhinged, off kilter, for whatever reason, can appear rather self-absorbed, don't you think? I mean, just listen to the prayer, right? Have you noticed the all about me, the my problem prayers in the Psalms of Lent? Like, if you're honest, if you read them, aren't they psalms of complaint? Um, these so-called penitential psalms, psalms meant to be psalms of repentance, of, of saying, of turning, are actually in some ways seem to be pretty self-absorbed. I've certainly noticed the self-centered focus in my own prayers. Maybe not you. Maybe you pray more like the second half of Psalm 102, but I tend to pray more like the first half. There are, in our psalms, like our psalm today, and in our prayers, a lot of me, my, and I. In these prophetic professions, amid the pain of disorientation, we seem to be the center, or at least it appears that way, just at the surface, right? When life is knocked off balance, thrown out of whack, in conflict and chaos, everything feels personal, doesn't it? When life is knocked off balance, thrown out of whack, in conflict and chaos, no matter how extreme or how unextreme, how ordinary, everything feels personal. A simple slight, an inconvenient obstacle in an everyday task, or the subtle conviction of the heart pushes us into the angst of our Lenten psalms. Into, as we are our first psalm, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Or in our second one, Psalm 32, my strength is dried up as by the heat of the summer. Or in our third, my heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes has gone from me. Or probably the most extreme, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I am utterly and totally lost and broken. Perhaps your groans are not so dramatic as the Psalms have been, though, as hopefully we were learning, our faith heritage encourages us, maybe they should be. Remember that to pray the Psalms is to add our voice to the voices of God's people, past, present, and future. To pray the Psalms is to let their language the hyperbolic and metaphoric language, evoke in us, bring to our minds and our hearts some image, some memory, some feeling of actual experiences in our lives or in the lives of others. And then, with that image, memory, and feeling held clear in our minds, to let the psalmist's words become our own, a passionate and bold, if hyperbolic and even metaphoric, address to the Holy One. That's what it means to pray the psalms. 
Throughout the Lenten season, we've said the Psalms teach us to pray this way because they are prayers penned from the place of all that all life has experienced. Somewhere in the flow and tangle of being securely oriented, painfully disoriented, and surprisingly reoriented. That all of life is experienced in the flow of this. Not necessarily just from point A or point B or point C, but from a mixture of these places. Somewhere in this movement from A to B to C and C back to, to, to B and, and B to A and all these different ways and movements, right? That this is the way we experience life in ourselves, life in relationship with who we are in our own knowing of ourselves, how we experience life with others, how we even experience life with God. Admittedly, the Psalms of Lent with seasonal appropriateness have primarily prayed, been prayed from the place of painful disorientation, from B, right in the middle. They are prayed along the downward movement of the soul into the depths of its hurt and its brokenness and into the depth of its utter dependence on something else for life. And that is where Lent leads us, right? That is where Jesus leads us, where Jesus has, his whole life has led us, to the place where we see, can visually see, utterly the depth of hurt and brokenness in us and in the world and our desperation and utter dependence for something else outside of us to bring relief. This is the, this, the, the place that Jesus leads us to, the falling that takes us to the cross, but not exclusively so. The Psalms are a microcosm of life in poetic form. Life, like the Psalms, is rarely experienced from only one place. The journey of Lent, like life, is not so chronological and clear-cut as, as our liturgy suggests. Maybe you entered Lent this season some 20-some-odd days ago, and you weren't in a place of disorientation, but from a place of orientation. But maybe within a few days, something happened and you found yourself disoriented. But then, before you could get to, to Easter, something has already begun to birth, and something new is coming and forming in your, in your life, and you're at a place of reorientation. Only in theories, only in published print, only in edited visuals, only in daily devotions is life singularly painful, exclusively secure, or solely surprising. Life, as we can attest, flows and lives and moves in atonement of complexity. And our Psalms embrace that. Life is lived in a mixture of these juxtaposed states that are paradoxically experienced at the same time. That in moments, from moment to moment, you may feel disoriented and reoriented, secure and thrown off. That it may not even be a day or a week from now where you feel different. It may be 30 seconds from now, or 10 minutes from now, or this evening. Or you may wake up today into the beauty of today, full of joy, and then tomorrow morning wake up and be like, well, yesterday never happened. We're in the dark, in the shadows. Where did that come from? What is true of life is also true of any given day and is of today's psalm. The 10, psalm 102 is a prayer amid the intersection, the intermingling of disorientation and reorientation, the tangle of pain and surprise, of doubt and faith, of despair and hope. That These things aren't actually contradictory to one another, but they actually experience at the same time within us. The first 11 verses are like the Psalms before. They are the voice of falling, of dying, the old passing away. The first verses that Ali read for us, they are the it is finished verses. The my life, it is finished for my life as it is, is over. Life in conflict with God, life in conflict with others, life in conflict with self is done. Let's read these Psalms. Psalms 102, verse, verse 3. I am wasting away to nothing. 
This is an admittance that life is done, that life is over, that I am finished with life as it is. I'm burning up with fever. I'm a ghost of my former self, half consumed already by terminal illness. I know what my end is. I know where, where I'm, what the conclusion of this is. So I'm giving up. My jaws ache from gritting my teeth. I'm nothing but skin and bones. I'm like a buzzard in the desert, a crow perched on the rubble. Insomniac, I twitter away, mournful as a sparrow in the gutter. All day long my enemies taunt me while others just curse. They bring in mills, casseroles of ashes. I draw drink from the barrel of my tears, and all because of your furious anger, you swept me up and threw me out. There's nothing left of me. Is that, is that not a, a confession of I am finished? Of it is over, of I am done. A withered weed swept clean from the path. Now, while the surface, on the surface, to those too uncomfortable with brutal honesty, too uncomfortable with raw emotion or the ugliness of death, these words may reek of self-absorption. I'm wasting away. I'm burning with fever. I'm a ghost. My jaws ache. My, my, my. Me, me, me. But the truth is, these are complaints as an act of hope. A confession of utter dependence on something else to change the status quo. Are they not? Are they not, I'm done with the way things are, I need something to be different. I can't live, literally, I will no longer live. I am withered away unless something changes. God, listen, here's what it said, the first two verses of Psalm 102 say. God, listen, listen to my prayer, listen to the pain in my cries. Don't turn your back on me just when I need you so desperately. Pay attention. This is a cry for help. And hurry, this can't wait. That's what the Psalms of Lent have led us to pray. Not simply, that, not simply a complaint of life, but a, I am finished with life as it is. And I want life different. I need life different. And I can't make life different. I need something else to make life different for me. As with the psalms before, the experience of disorientation has the psalmist appearing self-absorbed, voicing the groans of chaos in the familiar me, my, and I fashion. But in truth, the psalmist isn't so much self-absorbed as self-focused. Again, it's not so much self-absorbed as self-focused. The world the psalmist can see is narrowed and shrunk into what is only immediate and felt because they're in the middle of darkness, of pain and death, right? They're in a tomb. And what can you see in a tomb when the lights are completely out? Nothing. What might be a massive, ginormous cavern, if you go in without any light, is nothing more than six inches from your face. And everything's six inches from your face, right? Everything around you is only six inches from your face. Everything there is somehow either in danger for you or an obstacle for you or an unknown for you. And so no wonder you're so self-absorbed and self-consumed, self-focused in the dark. You can't see anything beyond. Maybe even not even your fingers. It's a world in the dark. As darkness does to our eyes, pain does to our soul. Life is short. And time and sight and possibility, that's what the psalmist declares. That's what these prayers are. These prayers are an admission that life is short, that life is, is, is near in sight and near in possibility. There's, I can't see beyond myself. 
it's not so much a prayer of self-absorption as it is the reality of where you're at. You're in the dark. My days are like an evening shadow, says the psalmist. I wither away like grass. But then, in verse 11, verse 11 my days are like an evening shadow, but then something happens within the dark. Mid-prayer, the psalmist prays in verse 12, But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. Me, my, and I, as Ali read for us, suddenly turn to you, yours, her, they, them, those. What the psalmist sees himself enmeshed in moves from enemies and shadows and waste places in the first part of the psalm to Zion and kingdoms and nations and generations and heaven and earth and servants and peoples in the last half. Let's read it. Psalm 102, verse 12. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time of favor to favor her. The appointed time has come. It's no longer an outward hope of might happen. It's, it's already here. I can begin to glimpse something outside of the darkness. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear her will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come. Now the psalmist can see not just himself, but for generations after him. So that people yet to be created may praise the Lord. People yet to be created. Just a minute ago, the psalmist prayed, my life is over. Everything's done and withered and gone. Everything's a wasteland. How could there be generations in a place where life is gone? There can't be. So now there's something that the psalmist begins to see far beyond himself. Lord, you look down from your glory in your holy height. From heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners and to listen to this, to set free those who were doomed to die. It's like in the tomb, all of a sudden, the stone begins to roll. Just a crack, just a smidge. Encased in darkness, and suddenly, suddenly, there's a possibility of life. Light breaks in. Set free those who are doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord, and in Jerusalem his praise. When peoples gather, no longer alone, just me and myself, but whole peoples gather in kingdoms to worship the Lord. It's like the world that closed in the, in the dark of disorientation that shrank and was stifled and induced paranoia in the formless black abruptly and exponentially expanded. The psalmist suddenly sees a massive universe and himself caught up in it, not merely tossed around by it. But why? How? What brought on this sudden change of focus, this enlargement of life for the psalmist between verses 11 and verse 12? We don't know. We don't know. The psalmist doesn't tell us. He doesn't say, all of a sudden, Lord, you showed up and something happened. All of a sudden, Lord, circumstances changed and something happened. We just know that something happened between verses 11 and 12. Much like our first Psalm of Lent, Psalm 6, the source of the psalmist's surprising orientation this time instead of disorientation, is ambiguous and thus universal. We think, often I think, as Brueggemann argues, that our daily experience of the events of reorientation, of, of surprisingly in the place of light and new life, 
are not as frequent as the times of dislocation or disorientation or pain. After all, the experience of disorientation or jolting, right? We've been in the conversation of disorientation for like three weeks, so I don't feel like I've got to reiterate this. But we've talked about the sources of pain, right? Of self and of faith and of, and of, of, of relationships. And we feel those, don't we? They jolt our lives, whether they be a microbial or cataclysmic event, whether they, they force us, they push us, they do violence against our state of stability, do they not? And in that violence, they tend to stick and to stick out in our minds in our hearts, and often in our prayers. Yet as Flannery O'Connor so masterfully reveals in her work, grace and mercy too are violent. Grace and mercy too have the force to knock us out of death and into life, to push us out of narrow confines into wide open spaces, whether in the subtle or in the superb. We experience the reorienting power of life different, of resurrection in a whole host of ways. In the gift of friendship, the presence of one who loves us, a call, a text, or even just in the reality of constant prayer. We experience the reorienting power, the push to life different, and the simple awareness of God's daily bread. Or if you're on the, the Grell's little prayer chain this morning, the fact that there was one egg left when they were about to run out of all the eggs and the chickens they've been waiting to have eggs, all of a sudden have eggs just at the moment when there was just one egg left. And that awe and shock of like, man, look how the Lord has provided for us. Simple. But, as the testimony of our friend this morning said, a reminder of God's grace and provision in the midst of a dark and difficult season. Or perhaps it's a care from a stranger, someone who stops and asks how you're doing, says, God bless you, or God loves you, or hey, how can I help you? Or maybe it's the constant and regular care of a spouse, a parent, a co-worker, a classmate, a roommate. It's always there, but easily overlooked. Or maybe we experienced resurrection and all those gestures of reconciliation and forgiveness, those movements of people toward another, that invade our everyday roles in relationship, that are always around us if we just learn to discern the ways the wondrous gift is given. That just as much as we hear in our media and see in our world this movement against, there is just as much movement toward if we just pay attention. In all the signs of hope we see, the evidence of common grace in an expanding kingdom, we see those who give up their lives for another, for the needy, for the lost, and for the enemy. We see, in, we see resurrection happening in the unsung activities of those who befriend the, 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 friend, the, befriend the friendless, in the courage of those who give a voice to the voiceless, in a kind word spoken to a child, to an employee, in the stain forces of evil from complete dominance, whether in our own life or in the world around us, in the avoided catastrophes, both personal and global, in the ending of wars and hunger and illness and division in families and in nations, in those spontaneous moments where God, in His desire and wisdom, has mercy, and you feel it at your core. It's not possible for the faithful to view these outstanding turns in human history, says Brueggemann, these turns in the history of the world and in the record of our daily lives, apart from the working of God's governance. 
of the surprising intrusion of God who just now, in the gaps between verses 11 and 12, in our own entanglements, makes things good. Somewhere between the disorientation and the re- beginning of reorientation, surprisingly intr- God intrudes, and just in that moment, makes things good. Whether in the profound or in the mundane, the movement from disorientation to reorientation is not a return to what has been before, not a return to normalcy, but something whole and wholly new. It is, as Psalm 102 teaches us, an entering into something bigger than what was before. Because what was before? What was the first half of the psalm? Me, I, my life. But now, it's a vision of life that's God on the throne. You, O Lord, are enthroned, God's kingdom. The Lord builds Zion. He builds up His dwelling place, His place for His people. Why? To set free those who are doomed to die. Reorientation always moves us from the narrow and somewhat natural self-absorption in the dark into the expansive life of God, into His kingdom come, into being absorbed into God's life, which encompasses nations and peoples and histories and all of heaven and earth. While Lent is indeed a school of repentance to which every Christian must go every year, it arrives 40 days before Easter every year and encourages us every year to follow Jesus into the cross, to the cross, to fall before he rise. Repentance, as you might recall from Jesus' kingdom epiphanies, is as much about the surprise of being found, about the giving in to something unexpected and more, as it is about the giving up on life on our own. Repentance, remember, What did Jesus say in the stories that we told just before Lent Lent season, right? The kingdom of God is like a sheep that's lost, that's found. A coin that's buried, that's dug up. It's just as much about being surprised by God's action and movement to grab us as it is about what we give up. But as Lent teaches us, and as Jesus showed us, we experience the power of this resurrection only through the inescapability of crucifixion. Only from, the, only from the place of being lost, of being buried, of death, of, of what needs to die, dying, so that something new might come. Which means new life is rarely one day here, next day there kind of journey. But a movement through the tangles of falling and rising, of dying and being free from death. And it's amid the tangles of disorientation and orientation, at the edge of death and life different. The Psalm 102 invites us to pray, teaches us to pray, to give into the violence, the push of grace and mercy. If we've been taught through the other Psalms to pray at the point of angst, to be, to be brought into the point of, of what's old dying, saying it is finished, Psalm 102 begins to teach us how to pray in the midst of all the complex emotions that come as death actually takes hold and new life begins to form. This is what the, the psalmist says. God sovereignly brought me to my knees. At the end, after he's already said what, what Ali has read, we have this first part of the, of the Psalm 102 being this me, I, dying to self, it is finished. This next part of beginning to see God's kingdom. And then at the end of the psalm, the psalmist comes back to what seems like the, very, the place that he started. God sovereignly brought me to my knees. He cut me down in my prime. Oh, don't, I prayed, please don't let me die. You have more years than you know what to do with, God. The old still grips, the light stings the eyes, but we're beginning to open to something more, even if gradually, right? I mean, think about it, even, even, in, the, even in the silly, subtle way, right? As a kid, 
in the pitch black of a deep sleep, and all of a sudden the lights came on. How many of you were, how many of us were like joyously popped up and, and were like, yay, lights on, right? No, like it hurt, it stung, right? Light still kind of stings when we've been in the dark so long. And that's okay. That's normal. That's actually a part of the whole journey. But the psalmist begins even in this kind of initial pushback to the light that's beginning to be seen. This life after death that's beginning to, to give in to, to the hope that he has. He begins to see a little bit more than the world just in front of his, his face. He said, you laid earth's foundations a long time ago and handcrafted the very heavens. You'll still be around when they're long gone, threadbare and discarded like an old suit of clothes. You'll throw them away like a worn coat, but year after year, you're as good as new. Your servants' children will be a good place, will have a good place to live, and their children will be at home with you. Even in the midst of darkness, there begins to creep into our lives this glimmer beyond our lives. A life beyond life as we know it, to life as it is, forever. And not just eternally forever, but in the lives of those around us kind of forever. So let's learn to pray together, with and for one another, in the tangle of our lives reoriented. Life's beginning to come home to a place where, as... Um, um, Dana read for us at, the, at our call of worship when he, she first called our attention and affection into focus, where we're both being led to. Remember, the Good Shepherd leads us into the valley of shadow death, but also chases us with his goodness and mercy, his beauty and love, today and every day. So I'm going to pass out some of these things for us, actually. If you, don't, you guys don't mind, I'm going to put a few in a row. You have to, I'll take one over to Ryan. Oh, Emily. So reorientation, says Brueggemann, is always a surprise and a gift. The rolling back of the tomb, the going in the middle of darkness and finding that there's life, and going looking for death and finding there's life is always a surprise. It always comes to us just when we thought it was not possible. When we could not see how it could be wrought in the present circumstances. Life falls into patterns of wholeness where we did not think it could happen precisely and only because God is at work. All the little things, whether it be little things of what seems like coincidences or big things that are clear evidences of grace, it happens because God is at work and we're able to see it. So here's what we're going to do in, with Psalm 102. What I want you to do is let the Spirit and the words of Psalm 102, the first part of Psalm 102, evoke or bring to your mind an image, a memory, an emotion, an experience of reorientation, of a time when your view of God and His Word and His world, His work, His heart surprisingly expanded. So again, we're moving kind of away from the first half of Psalm 102 into the second half. Letting the second half, where the psalmist is beginning to awake to a world beyond himself, a world which he's very much immersed in and a part of, cannot escape and won't let him go. But remember a time, even if it was a mundane time, something that is something subtle, like, again, like a chicken egg, like, all of a sudden, we had one left when we needed more, just at the right timing, or something completely out of this world incredible. When a time when you were aware of, when you could remember, uh, see the world beyond yourself, and you saw in that God at work, God's heart, 
Let yourself read verses 12 through 22 until that memory comes to mind. And then, and so then you can answer, again, where are you seeing God's surprising intrusion in the darkness? Where are you seeing God's surprising intrusion in the darkness? Once you have that memory, that feeling, that emotion kind of in your mind, hold on to it. And then let your voice join the psalm, describing what you see. Again, what the psalmist sees in his reorientation is a world where God is king and in control and sovereign and building and patient and kind and near and saving from death and bringing life and not just his life, but the lives of those around him and not just those around him, but all the nations of the world. Let yourself pray that prayer from, from the place of your own experience of seeing God. And then when you're ready, let the words of the final words of Psalm 102, verses 23 through 28, be a candid confession that while you're glimpsing this reorientation, while you're wanting to hold to the thing that you see, you're still feeling, for yourself or others, the reality of disorientation. In other words, pray from the middle of entanglement, of the movement between darkness and light. Let yourself pray that prayer, in, in, again, empathetically. Either empathetic to your own emotions and the complexity that you're feeling, or to those around you who you know are beginning to have hope, but struggle to actually latch on and hold to that hope, right? Then, after you've done that, come and receive what's been prepared for you, a life given for you, so that your life might be whole in God's life. Come receive the communion elements. And then return to your seat, and you'll pray the on-stage prayer, as we've been doing. And then receive the elements. Again, if you haven't received communion, when you hear Chaz and Chris start playing, that's your cue to come up and grab the elements and do so, okay? Any questions? All right, let me pray for us. And then just to kind of set our time of quiet and silence, and I'll let you just follow the instructions on your page. Father, we... We thank you for, for all kinds of things. That you lead us into, Lord, the death of things that keep life from us. That you're with us all the way in that. That you've never not been with us. That even in the dark when all we see and feel and know is the worry, the angst, the unknown around us. In fact, you have always been there. As a psalmist would say in another poem, prayer, even darkness is as light to you. But Father, we thank you that, that not just that you, you bring us there, but you don't leave us there in the dark. That your desire is for us to walk in the light. But that even with that desire that you have, Father, in your grace, in your mercy that chases after us, you lead us out of that, that dying into something new in a way that is actually kind. That's aware of, of our own humanness, our frailty, our tendency to be overwhelmed and even scared of what is new and unexpected. So help us, Father, as we, as we begin to see around us life full and whole in you. Help our eyes to adjust. Be patient with us as you always are. Father, and let us continue to be open and honest to you. 
not worried that if we, if we, if we feel still a twinge in us that's not, that's not the new yet, that the old still clings, that the old still hurts, Father, Lord, that we would be ones who don't fear that and run back into the dark of that, but Father, Lord, pray boldly and passionately to the one who's showing us the light, a world bigger than the world that we even know. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for time to listen, time to remember, and a time to pray. In your son's name.